You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy and to chapter 3. And as you turn there, I just say thank you for the privilege of coming back here uh, to be with you. I don't take that for granted. It is uh, a real privilege, and uh, I'm delighted to be a part of uh, the team that has been here for, for these few days. I want to read from partway through uh, chapter 3, just towards the end of chapter 3 and into um, the middle of of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 10. He's Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persons I endured, persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Just a brief prayer. Use an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Well, my message to you this morning is the message to my own heart. It is a reminder at this stage in all of our um, journeys through life, whether we're 
whether we have more in front of us or more behind us in terms of the chronology of things, uh, the longer I go, the more I realize that the simplicity of God's Word, the clarity of His exhortation, is so absolutely needful so that we might keep on track. And I want to try and expound in the time that we have the opening five verses of chapter 4, recognizing as we come to this that um, there is nothing like the prospect of death to clarify the issues of life. Uh, Samuel Johnson, the wit and uh, uh, man of old, was uh, once reported as saying that if a man knew that he was to be hanged in a fortnight, it would certainly make him focus on the remaining 14 days of his life. And it is that which gives impetus and urgency to this final letter of Paul's. As you read through Second Timothy and the exhortations that he provides to Timothy again and again, it takes until the sixth verse of chapter 4 to actually realize why Paul feels such a sense of urgency. And he tells us there, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. In other words, he says, I have now run my course, I have finished my fight, I have kept the faith, and it is absolutely vital, Timothy, that you now do the same. And what Timothy believes about the Scriptures is going to become apparent in his preaching. And what you and I believe about the Bible will be apparent in our preaching too. Any loss of confidence in the authority and sufficiency of the Bible will quickly become apparent. It will become apparent to the people in our congregations. It will become apparent to our wives and those closest to us. And if we're honest, we will be so aware of it too. Now, at the end of chapter 3, Paul is not informing Timothy of something that he hasn't known. He's not giving to him an introduction to the inspiration of Scripture, to the inerrancy of Scripture in the concluding verses of chapter 3. He's rather reminding Timothy of what he must never forget that the Scriptures are divinely inspired, they are completely reliable, and they are totally sufficient, and they are the key to the competence and usefulness of the man of God. And I take it there that his terminology, the man of God, as he uses it throughout, has a primary emphasis on the servant of God in the leadership of God's people. In other words, others like Timothy, if you like, the contemporary Timothys, are identified in this way, and the key to our usefulness is here provided. There's something wonderfully reassuring about this inasmuch as he does not have some long, elaborate uh, tale that we need to understand and implement, a succession of strategies that he has borrowed from various places. No, he says, usefulness, competence in pastoral ministry, in gospel ministry, is tied directly to the Scriptures. Uh, There have been a number of people, Paul says, who have turned away from him, And he's telling Timothy that they will turn away from him as well. So much so that from a human perspective, there was no guarantee that the church in Ephesus would make it into the next generation. That it would be able to make the move from the apostolic to the post-apostolic church. That when Paul went, as he was about to go, when Peter went and when the others left, from a human perspective as I think as Henley Moore puts it, the church trembled on the brink of annihilation. 
Now, obviously not from an eternal perspective, from a divine perspective, but just looking at it humanly. People would say, well, do you think there will be a church in the next generation? What will happen when Paul goes? What happens when the great leader leaves? Now, you don't have to be geniuses to realize that within the Calvary Chapel movement, you have entered into a similar kind of phase. We haven't lost the apostle, but we have lost a dear servant of the Lord. And it is not uncommon for me to hear people asking the question, what do you think will happen now? Well, what will happen now is going to be directly related to whether you continue to do what Chuck set out to do, which was to teach the Bible with clarity and with relevance in the power of the Holy Spirit so that unbelievers might be converted, so that Christians may be uh, established, and so that local churches may be strengthened. And Timothy is told here in the opening verse of chapter 4 that he is exercising his ministry with the Father and the Son as his witnesses. Jesus is going to come, as we've just sung, and as is here in verse 1, to judge the living and the dead. Paul has lived his life in the light of the then, the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness, the return of Jesus in power and glory. And the prospect of the then has transformed his living of the now. And so he is saying to Timothy, you're going to live now, but keep your eye on the then. And when you read church history, you realize that those who have blessed the church the most have been men who have lived just like that. Men who have understood that they are, to quote McShane, dying men preaching to dying men and women, men who have understood that they are charged with the responsibility, as it says at the end of Hebrews 13, to watch over the souls of those who are under their care, and to do so in light of the fact, again to quote McShane from his old hymn, when this passing world is done, and when has sunk yon glorious sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, not till then, O Lord, I know, not till then I will discover how much I owe. So Paul says, Timothy, in God's presence, before the searching gaze of Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in light of his appearing and his kingdom, I have a charge for you. I have a charge for you, and here it is. And what I want to do is identify this charge. Notice in verses uh, 3 and 4 his challenge, and finally in verse 5 say something concerning the opportunity that this provides for him to display his character. First of all, then, his charge. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, um, the charge, we should note, is a solemn charge. It's a solemn charge. There's nothing casual or inconsequential about this. It's not something that Timothy should take uh, for granted, nor that he should exercise in any way that is flippant. Uh, It is very, very important that we recognize to be set apart for the purposes of God is a solemn thing. Uh, Matthew Henry says that the best of men uh, need to be awed into the responsibility that we face. 
And the solemnity of it is very, very clear. I don't know what marriage ceremony you use, but uh, in the marriage ceremony that I use, which I think is the old Anglican prayer book one, um, it has the lines when you say to the people concerning marriage, it is not to be entered upon lightly or carelessly, but thoughtfully, with reverence for God, with due consideration of the purposes for which it was established by God. And if that is true of entering into marriage, it is certainly true of taking on the privileges and responsibilities of pastoral ministry. And the solemnity of it, we don't want to overstate, but we don't want to understate either. It is not only solemn, but you will notice that it is simple. I charge you, preach the word. Now, that's pretty straightforward. Even the dumbest of us can understand that. What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do that on the first Sunday that you're there, and then the next Sunday, and all the Sundays that you're there, and all the time in between. What am I supposed to be doing? It is straightforward. All that Paul has already written in 2 Timothy concerning the pattern of sound words, guarding the good deposit, uh, proclaiming the word of truth, adherence to the sacred writings, all of these things underpin the straightforward nature of this charge. In other words, we're charged with the responsibility of the ministry of the Word of God. And that ministry is to be exercised in the awareness of the fact that the Word of God uh, comes by the power of the Spirit of God uh, to the man of God and through him to the people of God. In other words, we are simply um, laying forward. We like people going in the kitchen and getting the food and bringing it out. And uh, we don't have to bring it out on roller skates. We don't have to do a dance with it. We don't have to somebody walk in with a trumpet in front of us. Uh, just simply bring it out and place it there. Put it on the plate in a way that people can manage it. Don't give it to them like a dog's breakfast. Make sure that it is, it is at least palatable. But nevertheless, that is what we're doing. We are seeking to bring the Word of God home to the people of God. The, the Spirit of God accomplishes the work of God through the Word of God. And powerful preaching does not have to do with personality or with histrionics of the particular preacher, but a consciousness of God, a consciousness of the awesomeness of God, of his power and of his majesty, of his might, a consciousness which needs to invade the soul of the preacher if ever it is going to grab uh, the congregation who are listening. And preaching is culturally neutral. Uh, meeting for a Bible study around a table with questions and answers is not culturally neutral. What I mean by that is that everywhere you go in the world, everybody understands in whatever language what it is to sit and listen to an individual speaking authoritatively whether it is politically or economically or whatever else it is. It is culturally neutral. You don't have to have graduated from a certain university just to sit and listen. But in a Bible study, it's not entirely culturally neutral. And you'll notice that as you deal with people. Some of your people are intimidated by a Bible study because it doesn't mean they shouldn't have it, but it is that when somebody, if they think that if somebody's going to ask them hard questions about the text, they immediately withdraw. 
because they're frightened that they will give a dumb answer or whatever it might be. But all of them are able to sit and to listen as the word of God is brought home by the man of God in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, you're Bible students, and you can see this from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, when God speaks to his people by Moses and reminds them of his dealings with them, when he commands through Moses the obedience of the people of God. I'm going to quote from Deuteronomy 4 from a moment here, just to make this point. Uh, The word of God to the people is, "'Take care and keep your soul diligently.'" Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. This is Deuteronomy 4, verse 10 now. How on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may, now notice the phrase, let them hear my words. Bring them so that they might listen to my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days. That's how you fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom, by listening to his words all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. And then he says, and think about it. You came near, stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, only a voice. He says, now it is on the strength of that voice that spoke to you, the very word of God, that you then took that to yourself, lived it out, and conveyed it to your children. Now, if you've been in pastoral ministry any length of time, you will have been asked it more than once by a kind but clueless friend, how do you come up with something every Sunday? That's what they ask you, isn't it? You meet them somewhere, you're having a coffee, and they go, how long have you been doing this? And you tell them, you say, I don't know how you do that. How do you come up with something? And that's what many of them think we do. They think we go away and try and come up with something. And I trust that none of you have been trying to come up with something. Because the good news is that God has come down with something and has given to us all that we need in this book. Right? The tragedy in our country today is within the church in this respect that many of our pulpits are occupied by inventive and well-meaning creative souls speaking with emphasis, thinking that The primary objective of teaching the Bible is simply to increase people's knowledge of a text and then give them a few practical pointers as to how they can make use of that uh, later on in the day or in the week. You say, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? No, that is not. That may be a secondary derivative uh, impact, but that's not the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis is that the Word of God may come home to the people of God in such a way as to bring them into a life-shaping encounter with God's truth, a life-shaping encounter with God's truth, a grace-shaped encounter with God's truth. Not simply that they're able to go out and say, oh, I understand what that means, and this is what I'm supposed to do. But they'll go out and say, I heard from God today. I met God today. God spoke into my life today through his word. My life is being shaped by his word. And not simply filling in the blanks in a little uh, outline that has been given to me. No, 
That's why Gresham Machen, the late professor of Westminster Seminary, pressed upon his students uh, in these words. It is with the open Bible that the real Christian preacher comes before the congregation. He does not come to present his opinions. He does not come to present the results of his researches in the phenomena of religion, but he comes to set forward what is contained in the Word of God. Now, the apostolic authority was that which was pressed upon Timothy, and it is apostolic authority which we have today, because what God has spoken to the apostle Paul has now been bequeathed to us in the Bible. And so we are to preach the word as contemporary Timothy, Timothy's, nothing more than the word and nothing less the word, uh, just nothing but the word. Amen. Sangster, who preached in London at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, uh, and was a, was a very, very well-regarded preacher, bemoaned towards the end of his life in the 1950s the fact that, as he put it, preaching is in the shadows, the world does not believe in it. I think the problem is greater in the 21st century. Preaching is in the shadows, the church does not believe in it. Amen. Uh, my brothers, we're sorely in need of this charge to preach the word. A solemn charge. Are you convinced, are you convinced that the regular, consistent, expository teaching of the Bible is the, is the driving force that shapes authentic church life? That's re that, is, that is really the $64,000 question. If you are, you will continue. If you are not you will quit. You won't quit believing the Bible. You'll just quit using the Bible. Your sermons will be filled far more with illustrative material and comments from the culture and information about this and that, which is not, which is not bad stuff, but it will lack the power which comes by bringing home the Word of God to the people of God. Now, that's why you will notice that he says in verse 2, uh, this is a really uh, searching thing as well, because you're going to have to be re ready, he says, when the seasons uh, come and go. There are seasons that are more daunting, potentially discouraging than others. Uh, in the New English Bible, which I seldom, seldom quote, it, it translates, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, as press the message home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. All right, so there is no excuse here for fearfulness or for laziness. When people are hostile or when they're receptive, when they're tuned in or when they're tuned out, when the prospect of a Sunday is delightful, when the prospect of the next Sunday is dreadful, when the crowd is growing, when the crowd is dwindling, preach the word. A sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and some fell among thorns, and some fell here, and some fell there. You're going, goodness gracious, what kind of operation is this? <laughs> Could you not target this stuff for crying out loud? I mean, what are you doing? Just throwing it around the place? And you put a net up for those birds or do something? I mean, you've got to get your percentages up here. Now, don't you feel like that so often when you preach the Word? But that's what we do. We're sowers of seed. We're farmers. God is in charge. One can plant, another can water, but only God can make things grow. 
And when we find that it is not apparently the most encouraging time, don't, whatever you do, go in search of some other methodology. Don't try and impress them with your spiritual insights of your own uh, personal journeys and have weeping testimony meetings and everything. Just teach the Bible. Just keep doing what we're told to do because by its very nature, Scripture will do its job. It will reprove, it will rebuke, and it will exhort. It won't always be comfortable, but it will always be profitable. And it's going to take real patience. You notice that? In the, I'm using the ESV, and it, and it says, and as you do these things, you need to do so with complete patience and teaching. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, using the utmost patience in your teaching. The NIV, with great patience and careful instruction. And here, complete patience. Oh, dear, oh, dear. What, what, what a daunting adjective that is, isn't it? Couldn't it have said, with a wee bit of patience? Or uh, with intermittent patience? You see, some of us as young guys in particular overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and we underestimate what we can accomplish in five years. Do you remember when your grandmother used to put hyacinth bulbs under the bed? You probably don't, but mine did. <laughs> I could never understand why you went out and bought bulbs and put them under your bed, but I'd see it some reason for it. I remember we used to crawl under there, and, and, um, and, and I would want to, she had only put them under about 20 minutes, and I wanted to go under and see if they've, if, they've, if they've come out. And she said, no, you're going to have to be patient. In the darkness, something will be happening, but it doesn't look like anything is happening. No, she said, I know it doesn't, but one day it will be apparent that something is happening. And some of us, that's all that we've got to do. Some of us are keeping our foot in the door for the next person who comes as the pastor. Do you realize that? That another will come behind us who will know blessing that we have never known. Our responsibility is to do what we're told to do and to do it with complete patience. When I taught my first child to ride a bicycle, I lost my temper with him and spoiled the evening entirely. And when I think about pastoral ministry over 32 years in Cleveland, I realize how easy it is for me to inhibit the impact of the Word of God by my own personal impatience. A young minister, and I quote, is prone to try to attain by one jump the height which others have reached by a long series of single steps in the labor of a quarter of a century. So you look at somebody and say, oh yeah, I can do that. I'll get there. I, can, I don't know why he's taking so long. I can do it in one big jump. Go ahead. We'll, we'll send the ambulance for you. So the charge is solemn. The charge is simple. The charge is a searching charge. That's enough on the charge. Let's go to the challenge. What is his challenge? Well, the challenge is for Timothy and all contemporary Timothys to be a good minister. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. And so he says, you need to understand that the time is coming, and uh, these times are... Uh, coming and coming, and uh, they're still coming. This is not hypothetical. If it were hypothetical, then there would be no reason for Paul to give him instruction about what to do with the actual times. There are times that he is facing. 
He's already told Timothy of those who have swerved from the truth. He's now exercising his ministry in light of the fact that there are people who are turning away from the truth and are turning aside to myths. Now, uh, when we read from Deuteronomy 4, God was very, very clear. He spoke and he told the people, uh, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to my word. I will send my servants and they will declare my word to you. And what happened? Despite their protestations and their affirmations, they just actually turned away from the word of God. They were so uh, intrigued by all of the paganism that went on around them. Uh, They suddenly thought, well, it would be nice to have images. It would be nice to have shrines. Goodness gracious, we've got nothing. We have nothing. People come to my church all the time, especially from a Catholic background, and they go, you've got nothing in here. I mean, I said, what? Lights? No, you don't have any stuff. Religious stuff. I said, no, we don't have stuff. No. (laughs) Well, why do you want stuff? Well, you have to have stuff. No, we got a we got a, a pulpit, and we and we got a table. <laughs> and on the table, we place the elements of communion to remind us of the fact that Christ has made one sacrifice for all time, and we have a pulpit on which we have a Bible where we remind ourselves that he has delivered to us his unerring word, which is sufficient for all time. So do you really think you need any stuff? Well, they needed stuff. They must have have said to one another, you know, we want to have events at our church that are far more appealing. I mean, people don't want to come and just listen to the Bible being taught for 45 minutes, for goodness sake. Let's get this thing jazzed up a bit. Look what they're doing over here. Look what's happening over there. Let the good times roll. Let's get the circus. Let's get the circus started here. Come on. Let's get it going. That's the kind of thing that was happening in, 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 the, in the time of Moses. Let's have a golden calf. He's up there. Goodness knows how long it'll be before he comes back. And when he comes back, it'll be the same old stuff. The voice of God, the voice of God, the voice of God. We don't want that. We've got to get the thing going here. Incidentally, you know, if you think about the average sermon, if you're a video clip user, you know, God bless you, but I, I suggest you chuck it. I suggest you stop. Because I guarantee you that those video clips are better than your preaching. And if you start, if you start to uh, uh, teach your people on the strength of the video clips, then it's the same as people who's, who are aware, say, well, this isn't very good, but my illustrations are fantastic, you know. And so consequently, the congregation, you say, now, if you look here in verse 3, they're like... <clears throat> and then, but if you say... Just the other day, I was traveling to Philadelphia, and the man sat next to me with a gigantic Labrador. The people are like, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) We're going now. Come on. Come on. We got the Labrador. Let's go. And then he does this whole thing, lasts an inordinate amount of time. And then he goes, and so you'll see again in verse 3. They're like... 
It's the same true with video clips. Don't be, don't be putting up there and then, and then trying to compete with it. You're doing yourself a real disservice. I'm just an old man talking to, 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 to other old men. Um, here's the deal. People will not endure sound teaching. Sound teaching. Now, he's already been told to follow the pattern of sound words, verse 13 of chapter 1. He's been warned in his first letter about those who teach a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of availing themselves of the teachers that will make them godly and healthy and useful, these individuals are in search of what is intriguing, what is fascinating, what is speculative, and what is spicy. They're more interested in novelty than they are in orthodoxy. When they look for a teacher, they look for someone who will tell them what they want to hear. That wasn't unique to Timothy's day. It wasn't unique to Timothy's day. You go back in the Old Testament, you find the same thing. The prophet Isaiah. They wanted Isaiah to, to just lighten up. The problem wasn't that Isaiah wasn't clear enough. The problem was that Isaiah was too clear. Can you just not be as clear, Isaiah? Just, just fudge it just a little bit, you know. We've got friends in here, you know. They, they don't need to know about the judgment of God. I mean, let's, let's try and be nice to these people. That is God's word through Isaiah. They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the prophets, to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That is no new thing to encounter this. Jeremiah, the same thing. Here are these people, says Paul to Timothy, and they will accumulate teachers the way some of you accumulate golf magazines. I, I always feel sorry for people who collect golf magazines because, because the golf magazines have got about 40 pages, well, 80 pages of adverts and then 40 pages of instruction, right? You turn the first one up, says, uh, how is your short game? You're like... Not so good. Well, let me see these pictures. Okay. So you start on this. Within about a minute and a half, you're completely messed up from anything you ever knew. You turn a page, it starts another thing, and another thing, and another thing. You're a nervous wreck, and you've, and you've three more magazines still to go, and you lay that down. You start another one, and you go out on the driving range, and you couldn't hit a ball if your life depended on it. Why? Because you've accumulated to yourself all of this stuff, and a lot of it counteracts the other stuff. The key to a good golf swing is doing the basics well most of the time. Whatever you do at the top, you've got to get the club head square. That's just as imperative. The ball goes where you hit it. Have you found that out? (laughs) The guys are going like, why did that happen? What do you mean, why did it happen? (laughs) What are you asking me for? You did it. See, these people, they're not set. They've got to go, oh, I went to Calvary Chapel for the Wednesday night. Then I went to the Church of the Holy something uh, for Thursday. Then I was, I, Sunday I skipped again, but I went, uh, I got something on the, 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 the download and something else. And these people are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the truth they need is here in the singularity and straightforwardness of this preaching. 
Jeremiah puts it like this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. Well, let's come finally uh, to his character. The challenge is straightforward. We don't really need to uh, work hard um, to find that people say, please don't talk to me about the nature of marriage. I just want to know about Jesus. Please don't tell me about these things. I want you to be able to accommodate my passions and my desires. And uh, as a result, off they go into Bypath Meadow. Well, here then is where our character is worked out. Timothy's too, as for you. But you, Timothy, even though you're in that environment, uh, here's what you need to do. And he gives him four imperatives, which are added to the imperatives that have already been present uh, in the second verse. It's a tall order. It's a man-sized challenge. It is a realistic statement of what Christian ministry is all about. Confronted by opposition, facing the possibilities of isolation, Timothy might easily have decided, well, you know, when Paul goes, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll move somewhere else. I think I'll go uh, take my wife and family and we'll go off uh, for a prolonged vacation. Um, maybe I'll just uh, stop. I'll lie down. I'll, I'll throw in the towel. I'll, I'll, I'll quit the relay race. And Paul is saying to him, no, 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 don't, don't even think about that. This is no time for self-pity. This is an opportunity for you to, under God, declare your convictions. And here they are. One, always be sober-minded. Or keep your head in all situations, as the NIV puts it. What, what was he confronted with? He was confronted with people around him who'd become intoxicated with the heady wine of heresy. They'd, they'd wandered away. They'd drifted off. And now it was imperative that he makes sure he keeps his head. Keep your head. All right? In other words, make sure that your mind, as he said earlier, continue in the things you've become convinced of, knowing from whom you have believed them and so on. Just continue in this. Now, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all, you know, my strength and my stay. And his word is all that I require. It's not a good time for Timothy to, do, to go into kind of a pastoral cruise control. He daren't fall asleep at the wheel. He needs to be vigilant. He needs to ensure that he himself is not susceptible to these speculative notions, that he is not unsettled by the numbers who are drawn away by the false teachers. He is not to be intermittently alert. He is to be always, always sober-minded. Keep your head in all situations. Cruise controls are dangerous, actually, I think. Because if you fall asleep with the cruise control on, you're, you're done. I mean, if you've got your foot on the accelerator and you begin to nod off, your foot comes off the accelerator. It, it, you've got a chance of waking up. But you try and do it on cruise control, there's no same way you'll end up. Keep your, keep your foot on the accelerator. Don't, don't kid yourself that you've got this down now, that you can just... Uh, you can take it up to, you know, 2,000 feet and immediately put it on cruise control. Always sober-minded. Secondly, endure suffering. Paul has invited Timothy as a pastor to share in suffering for the gospel. He's explained the reason he suffers is because of the gospel. He says it again. This is my gospel for which I am suffering all the way through. And in Paul's case, it was obviously and clearly physical, as it is for many of our brothers and sisters today. And as it may well be for some of us before too much time elapses. But it is 
tough to face mental, emotional suffering, isn't it? As people come around in search of a more politically acceptable gospel, there's a cost involved in actually declaring the gospel, in declaring to people, in public and in private, the Bible's assessment of man as being sinful, guilty, responsible, and lost. If, if we're going to do that, if we're actually going to say that in a winsome way, but in a straightforward way, if we're going to say to people, listen, what's, what, this is what the Bible says. You're sinful, you're guilty, you're responsible, and you're lost, and you have no possibility of fixing it yourself. The world tells you that if you have a problem, it's, it is inside of you, it is, it is outside of you, and if you look inside yourself, you'll be able to find a way to fix yourself. The gospel says, no, the problem is inside of you, and if you look outside of yourself to Jesus, who died outside a city wall, there you will find the answer. And the average person who lives in the area that I live in says, you've lost your mind back. I never heard such nonsense in all of my life. Are you telling me that my eternal destiny rests on the death of a Galilean carpenter on a gibbet outside uh, Jerusalem's walls 2,000 years ago? Yes, I am. Well, there's a cost involved in that. The people who thought that you were a relatively nice guy now have decided you're a bigot. The people who thought you were relatively intelligent have now decided you're an idiot. Do you like to be thought an idiot or a bigot? There's a cost involved in that. Well, face up to it. The Lord's servant faces accusations, insinuations, ultimately from the evil one who comes to deceive us, to discourage us, to disrail us if he could. And how many times Timothy must have decided to himself how glad he was that Paul had begun one of his chapters. Is it chapter 2? Yeah, you then, my child, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Endure suffering. Thirdly, and you don't need me to teach you this here at Calvary Chapel. You fellows teach me this. Do the work of an evangelist. Is he suggesting that Timothy's role changes from that of a pastor and a teacher? No. He is simply telling him, reinforcing for him the charge with which he has begun to preach the word. Go on steadily preaching the gospel. Jim Packer in his book, The Quest for Godliness, has a wonderful quote where it says, If one preaches the Bible biblically... One cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. And every sermon will be, as Bolton said, at least by implication, evangelistic. And in the time that I've lived my life, I'll be 63 on Friday, I have watched as good and effective godly gospel ministers have deviated from course. Some of them, by chasing down the heretics, and their ministry has now become a ministry of denunciation. You can't build a congregation by drawing them together on the Lord's Day and simply using it as an opportunity to, to, to explain to them how, every, how the whole world has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's not gone... It, it's not that... That you, will ne you, will, you won't see people saved under that ministry. You will not build your church. You will actually finally just gather around uh, some, of the, some of the ugliest, most disgruntled people you've ever met in your entire life because your ministry is no longer proclamation of the gospel. It is denunciation. Or it is condemnation of sinners. Not condemnation of sin as brought by the Bible, but constantly pointing out, can you believe it? Look at this. Look at that. Did you read this? Did you see that? The whole place is shot and so on. So eventually the, the guy's pulpit ministry just ends up being, he's cursing the darkness all the time. 
The Bible will take care of all of that in perfect balance. We'll be the ones that get it out of balance. That's why he says, you need to make sure you keep your head, that you endure the suffering that comes from being a gospel minister and keep being a gospel minister. You daren't neglect the ongoing work of declaring that the Son of God came to die for us and for our sins, that he offers now to clothe us in his righteousness, to present us faultless before the presence of his glory in eternity to say to people again and again that the only safe haven is in the mercy of God. The mercy of God is declared in Jesus, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. And to declare it again and again and again. John Murray, who taught at Westminster and who was... um, um, so theologically orientated that he probably would never in his day have been allowed onto any of the Calvary Chapel network. But listen listen to this great quote from him. He says, It is on the crest of the wave of divine sovereignty that the unrestricted summons comes to the weary and the heavy laden. This is Jesus' own witness, and it provides the direction in which our own thinking on this subject must proceed. Any inhibition or reserve in presenting the overtures of grace should no more characterize our proclamation than it characterized the Lord's witness. Now, he is speaking there to students who were tempted to get themselves so tied up in their theological underwear that they were frightened to invite people just generally to trust in Christ unless some of the wrong people ended up trusting in Christ, you see? Wow. Wow is right. And finally, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Finish, which I'm going to do right now and fulfill my ministry. Carry on to, the, to fulfillment, the commission that God has given you. In secular Greek, this verb is uh, one that speaks of the completion of a promise or the repaying of a debt. And we've made a promise to God, haven't we? We promised that we would follow him and serve him to the end. We are indebted to God for his mercy. We're indebted to others who have taught the word of God to us. And now here we find ourselves, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps aware of our own frailty, I hope aware of our own frailty, realizing that we're at our best day an unprofitable servant, that somehow or another God put his hand on my life, an old clay pot, and and decided to give me this privilege. And we do so in an environment where, to quote the old missionary hymn, we're facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. And we who resolve to know thee declare before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. And ours is the same ambition and the same glad message ours and fired with the same ambition. To you we yield our powers. Brothers, Let's preach the word. And let us pay heed to the wisdom of Spurgeon, which is contained in this final quote. He says to his students in his day, 
A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best defense of the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Brothers, let the lion out. Go home and preach the Bible. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.